He is a clinical professor of dermatology at New York University Medical Center. He is a graduate of MIT with a BS in Management, Information Sciences, and an MS MBA from the Sloan School of Management at MIT and received his MD from George Washington University. He attended Cornell University Medical Center for internship and in internal medicine and completed his training at NYU where he was resident, chief resident, NIH training fellow and dermatology surgery fellow. Dr. Regal serves with many professional and charitable organizations related to his research interests. In 1999, he served as president of the American Academy of Dermatology and also served for nine years as a director of the American Board of Dermatology. He is also a past president of the American Society of Dermatologic Surgery and American Dermatological Association. He also serves as vice chair of the MIT Education Council program. In addition, Dr. Regal maintains a private practice in Manhattan where he specializes in skin cancer, sun damage, and aging problems of the skin, and also lives in Vail, Colorado, where he enjoys skiing, golf, and fly fishing. The last bit of information is please don't forget to sign in uh, for your afternoon. Thank you. Dr. Regal. Uh, <coughs> well, thank you so much for that very kind introduction, and thank you all for inviting me. We'll try to make this uh, fun after lunch that we don't have postprandial somnolence, you know. It's uh, always a challenge after lunch. We'll try to make it a lot of fun. I know the schedule says I'm going to talk about uh, uh, dysplastic levi, but I'm also going to speak a little bit about congenital levi, too, because a lot of the concepts overlap, and it's sort of tough to, to really uh, make them totally distinct. So we'll talk about both, and they're equally important in terms of what we deal with with patients. Um, I have no conflicts uh, related to this. Uh, a lot of this, though, was covered in our new textbook, which just came out, which I hope, and we're pretty proud of it, and it just came out about two months ago, and uh, already it's a uh, bestseller for Elsevier, so they're happy. They've sold about 3,000 copies of it, which for a, a medical specialty book is like a blockbuster. So uh, I, have, I have a patient who is in this week who is, has a book that's a top 10 on the New York Times bestseller list, so that she told me how many copies she sold. I'm not even close, but, but my book costs more, so it's okay. So just to begin with, why is this an important issue? Well, just to remind you, one in five Americans will get a skin cancer of some sort during his or her lifetime. So it's clearly, we all know it's an important issue. And uh, putting this in perspective, reminding you that there are more skin cancers than all other cancers combined in the United States. Although melanoma makes up a very small part of the skin cancer pie, this is the estimated number of in in invasive, excuse me, melanomas this year in 2011, over 70,000. Um, it's clearly important primarily because the incidence is rising. This is actually a paper, by one of the first papers I ever did. It's, I can't believe it's almost 30 years ago that we wrote this. Uh, and at the time, we estimated what the lifetime risk of an American getting invasive melanoma was. And at that time, it was about 1 in 250. And we predicted it would be 1 in 150 by the year 2000. Now, what's interesting is that we wrote that paper. We were really criticized for being too liberal in our projections, but it turns out we were way too conservative in our projections because we hit that 1 in 150 number by 1985. This is the current number right now in 2011. 1 in 57 lifetime chance of getting an invasive melanoma. And should that rate of increase continue, it'll be about 1 in 50 uh, by 2015. That's 2% of the population. So it's, it's clearly a significant public health problem, especially at a time where we're concerned about costs and what we can do in terms of detecting things earlier. 
Now, if you add to those 70,000 invasive melanomas, an additional 53,000 plus in situ melanomas that are estimated for this year, and you put this all together and you do the math, what you see is about, about 123 plus thousand cases. And again, it's about one in 33 lifetime risk currently of getting any kind of melanoma. So uh, this is 3% of the population will get it sometime during their lifetime. And that's all comers. It's not just uh, fair-skinned individuals. So again, a significant impact on what we all do as uh, dermatology professionals. This is actually data that just came out from the National Cancer Institute, which is kind of interesting. This is their most recent data because they have to go back a few years to adjust it, but it's, it just came out about two months ago. And what you see is that the rate is rising dramatically over this 15-year stretch. It's rising particularly quickly, though, in young women. Primarily, that's probably due to tanning salons, we believe, because that's the one thing that young women do differently than young men, although I'm not covering that in the talk today, obviously an important issue. And also in white males over 65, which I'm not there yet, thank God, but uh, I will tell you that uh, these are obviously a group, it's hard to teach old dogs new tricks, I guess, so they still go out and expose themselves to the sun. Now, to put this in perspective again, uh, there's a predominance of men over women, about four to three, that get invasive melanoma. This is the data for this year, again, from the most recent paper. And uh, if you convert this out the other way, the lifetime risk, this is just for whites now, not for all Americans, is about one in 55 in females, and now one in 37 in males. This is for invasive melanoma. So you see, again, this is becoming significant in terms of the impact on public health. This is a little bit of a busy graph, but the important thing to look at is the tan bar, this one. This is melanoma of the skin in men and women compared to other cancers. And what you see is compared, especially in men, this is a blip actually when uh, people started doing PSA exams. So all of a sudden you saw a blip in, in diagnoses because a bunch of prostate cancers were caught earlier, but then it went back to it probably would have been like this had there been no PSA tests. But everything else is kind of going down or pretty flat except for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and melanoma. And you see the same thing in women also. It's not as dramatic, although again, the rates of breast cancer are going up, lung cancer are going up dramatically in women, but we're still kind of losing the battle in both genders for melanoma. Also putting perspectives here, the 10 leading cancer types for uh, the US for this year. And you can see that in men, melanoma is number five, making up about 5% of all the cases and uh, melanoma is number seven in women, making about 4% of all the cases. So again, relative to other cancers, certainly important. Uh, this is not just, as I mentioned, in whites. This is a data, this is from SEER, which is the US government's data collection effort. And what you see is that the, raise is ri or the rate excuse me, is rising dramatically for Latinos in the US. Uh, this is showing this is not just a US problem. This, I could put 20 of these up, but I'll put a few of the non-US slides up on recent papers. Uh, you can see the incidence rate was about increasing about 3 to 4% per year in Denmark. In the Netherlands, the annual increase about 4%. And really in the developed world, it's always that 3 to 4% annual increase that's happening on most of these. This is Catalonia, Spain, with a dramatic increase that's predicted to uh, continue to increase for this. So this is kind of the good news, that uh, the survival rate for melanoma is improving. Uh, but the only reason that's happening is not because we have better treatments, it's because earlier detection, and it kind of leads into why early detection is important and, how, and early treatment is important as we talk about congenital and dysplastic nevi. But the bad news is, is that over one American dies of melanoma every hour. So if you're talking to another group of people or you're talking to the media or something like that, it's an important little factoid because 
Some people poo-poo the importance of skin cancer. Everybody in this room knows the importance of skin cancer in terms of uh, prevention. And this is kind of our report card for the last six years. This is the number of deaths from melanoma in the U.S. And what you see is that, uh, unfortunately, uh, it's not very good. Uh, this, I would give us maybe like a D for this. I can't give us anything better than that because despite everything we're doing, the bottom line is more people are dying from melanoma. And the key thing for the incidence of melanoma, and other people getting melanoma, is changing behaviors. We call that primary prevention. But the key thing for mortality from melanoma is early detection. And if you look actually at the states that have the highest mortality rates, highest incidence rates, are the ones in the southern part of the U.S., like Florida is the top four, or Hawaii, Arizona. But in terms of mortality, it's the states with the worst access to care. So actually, the, the two states that are at the bottom of the list are uh, Oklahoma and Vermont. And it's interesting, Vermont is particularly interesting because, uh, is anybody from Vermont here at all in the room? Uh, there's somebody over there, okay. Senator Leahy's wife has had melanoma. She's very open about it, and she's been talking about it and really talking about prevention. And I had a chance to have a conversation with him about it, and he knows that melanoma mortality is the worst in the state of Vermont, and he believes that it is access to care, and actually he's been trying to work on improving that. So the more you could do with early detection there, the better you're going to make an impact in, in Vermont. Now, this again puts melanoma in context relative to other cancers for mortality, and you see that we're one of the three cancers that are going up. What's interesting is the liver bile duct and esophageal are lower numbers than melanoma, but they're increasing faster. And this has been over the last couple of years. For some reason, liver and bile duct cancers have really gone up, and they think maybe related to hepatitis C or something. I'm not quite sure, but you can see clearly we, we belong down here, yet we're up here. So that's, again, not very good. Now, there's a couple of other reasons. I'll give you a, hopefully none of you are Red Sox fans, because uh, I get to take care of the Yankees, which is a lot of fun. And that's uh, the, the Yankee trainer who just retired after 50 years, Gene Monahan, Steve Donahue, and of course that's our manager, Joe Girardi. Uh, and uh, why that's important is, uh, number one is they gave me a World Series ring in 2009, which is kind of cool. So you see they're all cast separately. So my name's on the side, just like Derek Jeter says Jeter, mine says Regal, it's a player ring, it's kind of cool to get. But the point is that even they get dysplastic nevi. And I can tell you that uh, a number of the well-known players, in fact, uh, somebody who was very open about it a couple of years ago, we picked up a melanoma on uh, Tino Martinez. And uh, it was kind of interesting because uh, he has dysplastic nevi. Again, I'm not speaking out of school because he's been very open about it. But uh, the reality is that uh, players get a lot of sun, a lot of exposure, so we deal with that all the time. And actually, one of the reasons I didn't come down here yesterday, until yesterday, rather, was uh, on Thursday night, I had a dinner with uh, the team, and uh, here's a picture actually of my daughter, this is my daughter, and that's Yogi Berra, and uh, my daughter got to meet him, I know him pretty well, and uh, she was pretty excited about it too, so, uh, but it's fun working with them, and as I said, a lot of what we're talking about, I deal with them on a regular basis for this. Okay, so we talk about nevi and melanoma. There's really two kinds of things we're concerned about, dysplastic nevi and congenital nevi, and similarly, there's two issues with each of these kinds of nevi. Are they precursors? In other words, do they automatically progress to melanoma, in which case you want to remove them? Or is the issue more that they're markers? In other words, they're warning signs that people who have a lot of them are at increased risk for getting melanoma, but the moles themselves don't automatically turn into melanoma. And that's really where the dilemma lies when you're dealing with both of these issues, because 
Again, if they're obligate precursors, you're going to cut everyone off. But if they're only potential precursors, but a warning sign that melanomas can arise elsewhere, then they're just markers. And essentially, if you take them off, you're shooting the messenger of bad news, but not getting to the root of the problem. So we're going to look at both of these kinds of lesions in, within those contexts. So we'll start with congenital Levi. I love this cartoon because it sort of uh, describes it pretty well that if you were a deer, you probably wouldn't want that as your birthmark on there because a uh, happy hunter would make somebody. And really, people have known about congenital Levi for many, many years. This is actually a painting from Goya over 200 years ago of his as a family of Carlos IV in the Prado a Museum. And I'll do a close-up of, this is, the, I guess, the mother-in-law or something they had told me. And you can see she has a congenital levis right there present that Goya even painted. So uh, we know that those issues are important. Um, and this is actually, uh, I collect old medical textbooks. So this is a textbook from 1903. And what they have is they have uh, graphics of wax moulages uh, that are at the Hôpital Saint-Louis in Paris. And some of them are still there. And you can see here is a melanoma arising in a big, a giant congenital levis on the scalp. So clearly, melanomas can arise in giant congenital levi, and we've known that for many years. This is actually a patient. This picture is in our textbook. Um, he had what's called a bathing trunk nevus, so that's a giant congenital levis. And what was interesting, here's the melanoma right here. And this guy was kind of a, a recluse and really didn't come in for treatment until this. And he, the reason he finally came in for treatment, he had jury-rigged this uh, pad that would sit over that thing to keep it from bleeding through onto his shirt and onto his pants. And uh, once the pad kind of didn't work anymore, that's when he decided to come in. So obviously he uh, expired about uh, two months or so after this photo and it already metastasized. But clearly, this is pretty rare because only about uh, roughly six per 100,000 people are born with a giant congenital nevus. Giant being defined as greater than 20 centimeters or greater than eight inches, basically the same thing. But what about, so we know the big ones are bad, but what about a medium one? Medium congenital levi are defined as anything from 1.5 centimeters to 20 centimeters. So this would be a medium, medium congenital levis. Does this lesion have to be prophylactically removed? More common than the giants, but less common than a small congenital levis. This is something less than 1.5 centimeters in size. So what do you do with this one? This one's pretty common. About 1% of the U.S. population is actually born with a true mole. So that's one in 100 people. That's roughly you know, what, 3 million people in the US will have something like this. So clearly a common problem. What, what could you do? So this, this debate goes back many years. These are some old slides, but I think they're valuable. This is even 30 years ago. This was Larry Solomon, who was arguing in the archives of dermatology that he believes there was adequate data at that point to conclude that some congenital levi evolve into melanoma. He believes, therefore, there's evidence to recommend the removal of all congenital levi. And then Al Kaff, who was my mentor at NYU, said just the opposite. There are insufficient data available to remove these, and therefore it's so rare that it happens in small and medium-sized lesions, it's not worth doing it. So this is Arthur Rhodes, who again, this is a long time ago from Harvard, who basically made the same argument that small congenital levi, he believed, could account for up to 15% of cutaneous melanomas. Now that really was inconsistent with what a lot of other people see. So let's start with a thought slide. How many congenital levi have you seen? Probably many, many, right? You see them certainly several times a week, if not more frequently. How many melanomas have you seen? Many, right? Lots of them. How many times have you seen a melanoma arise in a small congenital levis? Raise your hand if you've seen a melanoma arise in a small congenital levis. 
I, mean, I usually get a couple of people, but it's pretty rare. I've seen four in my life, and I see this every day. It's a pretty, pretty rare event. So we actually wrote a paper on this a while ago with myself and Bob Friedman and my colleagues at NYU, trying to actually compute what the risk of small congenitally evolving into melanoma. And we're talking about the precursor risk, not the marker risk for this, because that's the argument made on congenital levi. So how do you determine if something's a precursor to melanoma? It's not as straightforward as you might think. Um, first of all, this was a paper that was done about uh, 10 years ago, where they looked at 289 melanomas. It turned out that 61 were associated with this plastic nevi, and that's roughly what the number is. About 20% of melanomas have an associated dysplastic nevus, typically. Four were associated in this series with congenital nevi. That's about 1%, so that's quite different than the 15% um, that was suggested by Arthur Rhodes. Now, a large congenital nevi, the ones that are greater than 20 centimeters, they are at increased risk. Everybody agrees with that, and this data shows that uh, 148 times more frequent than random chance alone. So, again, about six per 100,000 uh, people have the giant congenital nevi, so it's, it's a couple hundred in the U.S. It's not really a lot of people. Medium size, people have looked at that specifically. This was one of our fellows a couple of years ago at NYU who did. And in a series of 220, uh, 230, well, 230 lesions on 227 patients, there was no melanomas found over a follow-up of seven years on them. So even medium congenital nevi are pretty rare. And now the risk of those with small or medium, again, reported to be about uh, anywhere in the literature from 8 to 6 per, 8 .8 to 6%. It's the same roughly as the risk of melanoma at any site. It's direct, directly related to size, so the larger it is, the greater the risk. But it turns out if you have these as looking from the marker side, the risk of getting melanoma either in the nevus or anywhere else on you, if you have a small congenital nevus, is about the same as if you didn't have it. So there's almost no difference even as a marker or a precursor for these small congenital nevi. Now this was interesting because this was a, a study done by Dick Sagebill almost 20 years ago, who's at uh, University of California in San Francisco. And what he basically showed was that the risk of the, having a nevus associated with the melanoma got lower as the melanoma was thicker. So you can see these are all nevi, not just congenital or dysplastic, but the thicker the melanoma was, the less chance. And he argued that maybe as melanomas got bigger, they ate away the precursor nevus. So you can't really see it once by the time the melanoma is bigger. And he might be right with that. But the reality is you'd expect it to be the other way around if, in fact, there was a pre real precursor issue. So the other issue with this is it's very hard to determine the true precursor risk. We talked about first, as the melanoma gets bigger, it can obliterate the nevus. So the true precursor rate, in fact, could be higher than we report if the nevus is getting eaten away. But if you look, this is uh, from our data, NYU Melanoma Cooperative Group. Each of these dots is where melanomas occurred. And you, this is just the posterior side of men and women. And obviously, the highest spot in men is on the upper back. Women is on the legs, the most common site for melanoma. But the point is, that's the exact same distribution that you would see congenital levi if you map them out. So again, if they correlate with the same sites of high density, what you would get is that a lower risk, just by luck, there'd be some collision. So it's hard to make it through. And, and then the final thing is that they're really, you think congenital levi are an easy definition, something present at birth, but pathologists and clinicians disagree on the definition of, of uh, congenital levi. And for that reason, it's hard to assess a precursor risk. Let me show you what I mean by that. This is a patient who came in to see us several years ago at NYU. This is a young boy. Here's his upper lip. He was about, uh, probably about three years old at this point. 
Now, how many of you think this is a congenital nevus when you look at it? You can raise your hand. There's no right or wrong answer here. All right. Well, I thought so too. And uh, what the mother did is she took out a baby picture. And guess what? It's not there, right? <laughs> but here he is at age one, about eight, a little under age one, and you can see just the starting of that lesion. So is that a congenital nevus? Well, histologically, it kind of looks like one, but there's a whole other part of congenital nevi called tardive congenital nevi. And with that are basically ones that are not present at birth, but by age two or three look like they should have been present at birth for that. So again, if some people define this as present at birth, others say they can be tardive, they will count that in the group. There are histologic criteria that are different. Some say mark, histologic criteria mark, where there has to be deep enough penetration. The size criteria are disagreed upon. So the other thing is, based on all these things, if you look at the prevalence of congenital nevi in the population, it varies from 1% to maybe 4%, depending how loose or how tight you are with your criteria. So for all these reasons, these four reasons, it's actually pretty tough to determine what the actual precursor risk for congenital nevi is. As I mentioned, number one, the fact that melanoma is growing, it could obliterate the precursor nevus. That would give you an artificially low number because of the fact that the overlap of the anatomic distribution of congenital nevi and melanomas are roughly the same you get an artificially high estimate. If you disagree upon the criteria, that could go either way. And the other thing that's equally important is, if you make small changes in the assumptions of your calculations, like you say, okay, the prevalence of congenital Levi is are 2% instead of 1%, or the average size is two centimeters instead of one and a half centimeters, whatever, those little changes make big changes in your calculations. So they're very sensitive to little changes in the assumptions. So based on this, even though Arthur Rhodes was pushing to have these things removed and suggesting they should be removed by age eight or nine, when, when uh, children can sit still for local anesthesia, uh, others have tried also to curette these. This was a study done about 10 years ago trying to curette these or dermabraid these off in the neonatal nursery. That didn't work either. And one of the reasons is that typically if this does become malignant, it's the, the deepest one-third where the melanoma typically arises. So if you just dermabrade or try to create caret or something off or laser off the surface, you're really not getting to the literal root of the problem. And this is the dermabrasion study it was doing showed basically that uh, it was, you get reduction of pigment, but it did not lower the risk because the deeper cells were not removed. So what do you do with these dysplastic nevus patients? Uh, sorry, congenital nevus patients, rather. And the answer to it is it is a challenge because the typical story is the mother brings the child in, and they've been in the pediatrician's office, right? And the pediatrician's office says, you got to get this removed. I'm sending you to the dermatologist to do this. So you're already starting with an uphill battle if you don't want to remove them. And all you can do for the large ones, it's, it becomes a technical issue to remove them. There are ways to do it, serial surgeries, tissue expanders. We could spend a little more time on that. But it is a challenge. You can only remove them or debulk them. The smaller ones are potentially doable. But basically, I present the data to the parents and say, look, there's data in favor of removing them. I believe that there's no reason to remove them. Here's my reasons for it. What do you feel most comfortable doing, number one? And number two, you want to make sure that when you do this, you remind them that most, there, there's a, a morbidity of about seven per 100,000 in kids for general anesthesia. So there's no reason to do these until they can sit still for local anesthesia. So at least wait till they're eight or nine, which is typically the age that they will sit still for local anesthesia to do this. And I think what we need in the future for congenital Levi primarily are really better understanding of which are the ones that are gonna progress. If we had markers for these, 
that would be wonderful, but we need some way of seeing, in terms of precursors, which are the ones that are going to progress, and then selectively removing them, so it's hard to do. Okay. So now we're going to switch nevi and look at this nevus, and this is the challenge, again, we face every day. And if it was only a person coming with one of these, it would be easy, right? But they come in with a number of them, and that makes them challenging. So why is the issue of dysplastic nevus as a risk factor for melanoma so important? And uh, there's a bunch of dilemmas associated with dysplastic nevi. Certainly, again, as we talked about with congenital nevi, the magnitude of the problem, uh, again, what are the histological criteria? They're disagreed upon even more than for congenital Levi. Are they precursors? Are they markers? And other clinical concerns. So we're going to touch on these in terms of looking at the statistics and then talking about a uh, typical type of approach in terms of management. So you can look at all these things, but in terms of clinical management, the real issue we have are peepers, people with dysplastic nevi and increased risk for developing melanoma. Because all those other things are academic. This is the thing we deal with every day in the clinical office. So this is, I'm going to show you the data to show you, in fact, they are at increased risk for developing melanoma. And therefore, in terms of dysplastic nevi, it certainly meets the marker criteria to follow them more closely. So the key, three things to be true if dysplastic nevi are really markers for melanoma. You have to be able to clinically recognize them. They have to have a relatively low prevalence in the population because if everybody had them, they're not really a good marker. And you have to document, excuse me, that they uh, have an increased risk for developing melanoma in these patients. So what are the clinical characteristics of dysplastic nevi? Well, I mean, there's clearly differences between these two lesions. This one is different from this. This is obviously not a dysplastic nevus. This it turns out to be a dysplastic nevus, but it's certainly at high risk. You'd probably want to biopsy that. So what are the clinical characteristics? Well, interestingly enough, they're very similar to what you might expect from early melanoma. So there is some overlap there. But there's some subtleties. When people describe this, they describe it as a sort of ABCDE light in a sense that it's not quite the magnitude of the features. There's some changes in size, colors, hues. Sometimes they're raised centrally, but they tend to be a little more symmetric. And they tend to be not as raised as you'd expect for when the lesions are large. There is typically with these what we call a shoulder zone, where the pigment is dark in the center and trails off with indistinct borders, so the perimeter fades imperceptibly. Sometimes the surface is papillated, almost cobblestone. It's very rare to see hair coming out of dysplastic nevi, unlike congenital nevi. They tend to be asymptomatic, and they tend to not be ulcerated. If something's ulcerated, you're going to worry about it being a melanoma. So can you recognize dysplastic nevi from photo? This is a paper done about 10 years ago that really looked at this specifically. Looked at 300 photos of biopsy-proven dysplastic nevi, and they found there was pairwise agreement. They had two people looking at it. Did they agree? Did they disagree? In 87% of the cases, and they could differentiate them from banal, in other words, non-dysplastic nevi. So they felt at least that the diagnosis clinically was relatively um, reproducible. So that sort of meets the first criteria. Now, what's the prevalence of dysplastic nevi in the population? Well, there have been a number of papers out there looking at this. <coughs> Excuse me. This was a paper done in, in uh, Army volunteers in the U.S., and uh, they had 707 consecutive uh, people that they looked at. Uh, these were all people, obviously, in their 20s, and uh, about 2.4% had a biopsy-positive dysplastic nevi. So, uh, Davis, rather. This was also looked at clinically at 25 to 16 to 25 year old males in Germany, a series of uh, about 1,000 men. These were all males coming in. And you can see that, in fact, again, roughly that 2 percentage number that's there. 
This was a study done by Bill Crutcher, who unfortunately passed away in, in Northern California in Napa, and he found almost 5% in his consecutive series over two years with this. Uh, this is a study done by Jason Rivers, who used to be with us at NYU, who was a, did his fellowship in Australia, and now is in Vancouver. Uh, and he showed a series in Australia, about 5%, but you expect to see more nebi there because it's just so sunny there. Um, and this is an old graph, but it's, I tried to, these are all studies looking at prevalence. And you can see that they're somewhere between about 1% and about 8 or 9% across all these studies that were done, uh, looking at these. And, you know, again, they all have some biases to them, but you get a feel for what the overall magnitude would be. Now, there's one study that was different. <laughs> And that was a study done by Mike Pipcorn at the University of Utah, where they found a 53% prevalence, 53% prevalence of dysplastic nevi in their population. You know, so the question, what was different with their study? And I think everybody agrees they did some different things the way they did it. But also, Utah is probably not the place to do uh, you know, good uh, population studies in the sense that the genes are not totally sorted. You know, what I'm saying it's sort of a group that tends to uh, not come in from all parts of the country. And they do a lot of wonderful genetic studies in Utah because they can follow people for these reasons. But just looking at gene sorting, sometimes you'll get some aberrant numbers. So even Mike says he doesn't think it's this high when you do this. So if you take that one study out, the data is probably somewhere between 2 and 8% of the population have at least one dysplastic nevus. So that's probably, you think of your own population, if you're practicing down here, it's probably higher, the high end of that or higher. And if you're in North Dakota, it's probably on the low end of that. So we meet the three criteria being relatively low prevalence, clinically recognizable, and the fact that these become markers. So the next question is, do people with dysplastic EVI in fact get melanoma? Of course, you want to know that. This is a patient of ours, and this is a melanoma arising in a dysplastic nevus. You can see it histologically very clearly. This is another patient that's kind of an interesting patient. You can, this is his back, and you can see the neck is a fairly recent scar. The reason I remember this patient is that uh, I was leaving that afternoon to go to an academy meeting, and I got called up to the neurosurgery service for a consult. This was a guy who had uh, uh, C-spine uh, surgery about 10 days before. He had been on the neurosurgery floor all that time, and they were about to discharge him. And somebody said, gee, this spot looks a little funny. Maybe we ought to call the dermatologist. Uh, and of course, uh, nobody, you think people listening to his lungs for 10 days, somebody would have looked at this, right? And clearly that's a melanoma but he's got a whole bunch of dysplastic nevi. So people do, in fact, with dysplastic nevi develop melanoma. This is another person, same thing. This is a little more advanced melanoma, but you can see, again, dysplastic nevi. This person let this go for about a year before um, saw a physician, so unfortunate. So we know they develop melanoma, but in terms of precursors, do they develop melanoma at a greater frequency than you would expect by random chance alone? Because you need that for markers, too. So what are the risk factors for melanoma? This is a model that we've used uh, as a quick screen at NYU for many years. These six factors, uh, sunburn, uh, blistering sunburns, uh, if you have red or blonde hair, market freckling of the upper back, which is basically a surrogate. You've had a lot of sun, you're susceptible to it. A family history of melanoma, the presence of actinic keratoses, or having an outdoor summer job as a teenager for two or more years. Each of these factors independently predict your risk of getting melanoma. And to put it in perspective, the general population has a risk of one. Any one of those factors I showed you raise you to like two or three. If you have two or more of those factors, you go up to about 10 to 15 to 20. But the number one factor that best predicts if you're going to get melanoma is, in fact, 
if you have dysplastic nevi. If all the studies show that. And to put this in perspective, here are the other factors. And this is somebody who has dysplastic nevi at a family history for melanoma. So those two things together are synergistic in terms of predicting family, at risk of an individual getting melanoma. But either one of them, family history of melanoma or dysplastic nevi, increases your risk. This is a study that we actually did to show this a long time ago, but it was really interesting because we took myself and Al Koff uh, and Bob Friedman, took 452 patients with dysplastic nevi, and we followed them prospectively for an average of 27 months, a little over two years. And in this group, there were 16 people who developed 18 melanomas during that 27 months of close follow-up. So is that more than you expected by random chance alone? Well, at the time, the lifetime risk was about 1% lifetime risk, and we found in 27 months 3.5 times that in that group. So clearly an increased risk for developing melanoma. Okay, so the next question is we know there are increased risk. I've shown you, I could show you more papers with that. But the next question that's equally important is, are all people with dysplastic nevi at equal risk for developing melanoma, or is there, in fact, a risk gradient? In other words, is this person at the same risk as this person at the same risk as this person? Well, I think all of us would agree this person's in trouble, right? And he, in fact, also has his pictures in our textbook. He's our champion. He's had six primary melanomas. And uh, you know, that, that's a lot. He's not meds. These are six primaries. And you can see this person walks in, there's clearly something wrong with his melanocytes in some way. So the first person that tried to do this was uh, Mark Green and Ken Kramer at the NIH. And they came up with the so-called ABCDD2 classification system, which had to do with whether you had a family history of dysplastic nevi and whether you had a family history of melanoma. The highest category was D2. And obviously, as you get down here, the prevalence of the population was less, but the risk was higher. So they estimated that the D2 group had a family history of both and had at least two family members who had melanoma. And they estimated it was about 50 to 100,000 Americans would fit in that group. And what they found for this is that, sorry, oops, sorry, was the lifetime risk of the D2 group, I guess this will go backwards, there we go, um, was about approached 100% for getting melanoma. So those 50 to 100,000 people need to be followed very closely. But the problem was with that system, it's pretty easy to get a, somewhat easy to get a family history of melanoma correctly. It's very difficult to obtain a family history of dysplastic nevi. I mean, think about it. If you ask, do other people in your family have lots of brown spots? Well, those could be sebs, lentigines, whatever. So to kind of obviate that, we came up with a system that we use and most groups use now to the, the four risk groups based on whether the patient has dysplastic nevi, whether they have a prior personal history of melanoma, and whether or not they have a family history of melanoma. It's a simple point system. They get one point if they've had a personal history of melanoma, a prior personal history, and they get two points for every family member who's had a melanoma. So you can have anywhere from zero to potentially as many points as you can think about. But what they were grouped into points. So group zero is somebody who has dysplastic nevi and has no personal or family history of melanoma. Group one is somebody with a personal history Group two has at least one family member who's had melanoma, and group three has at least two people in the family, either the patient and the, another person in the family, or two other people who've had melanoma. And this is a paper we published in JAD about 15 years ago looking at this, and the bottom line is you can see there's clearly a risk gradient depending on how many family members have melanoma. And we actually, again, use this gradient to determine how frequently we follow patients with dysplastic nevi. We'll talk about that in a moment. This is another way of looking at it. This is the basically 25-year risk 
for these patients, and you can see the group zeros are about a 7% risk. Now, what's interesting about that, these are people that have no family history of melanoma, and some people have made arguments, well, you know, you don't have to follow them as closely, they don't get melanomas that often, and we actually did the study, a priori, we believed that that was true, but roughly, I showed you the risk of American getting invasive melanoma is about 1.5%. This group is already at 7% if they have no family members. And this is, it goes higher over time, but the group threes in 25 years are 50%, so high risk group. But the bottom line is there's clearly a risk gradient in terms of assessing who's at the highest risk for developing melanoma. Now, is this just US findings or worldwide? Again, as I showed you with congenital nevi, there's studies in all these countries I could put up and more showing that people with dysplastic nevi are at increased risk for getting uh, melanoma. Where do they rank as a risk factor for the development of melanoma? Well, I told you this earlier. Basically, this was a study showing that uh, a 47-fold increase in those with dysplastic nevi compared to those without. There's a number of studies showing that, again, it is the most important risk factor. Now, let's look at some of the other risk factors associated when we look at the gradients. So if you've had a melanoma, and are people who have dysplastic nevi at risk, greater risk of getting a second melanoma? In other words, they've had dysplastic nevi, you've diagnosed a melanoma on them, should you keep following them? And the answer is it's very clear that it is. Um, this was a study showing that they found 11% of people who developed one melanoma had dysplastic nevi, but 48% of people who developed a second melanoma, in fact, had dysplastic nevi. So this is a marker for increased risk for developing second and multiple subsequent primaries. Again, this is another study showing these are all patients with multiple melanomas, multiple primaries. 82% had dysplastic nevi, 71% had a family history of dysplastic nevi, and 65% had a family history of melanoma. So it turns out that the presence of dysplastic nevi are the most important factor in predicting if a patient's gonna get a second melanoma. Again, it's an extra reason to follow them more closely. Now what about patients with the so-called classic dysplastic nevus syndrome, as it's been defined in the literature. And this is defined as people with 100 or more nevi that have at least one or more nevus that's greater than eight millimeters, and they have multiple dysmorphic, atypical, funny-looking moles, and this subset is an increased risk for developing melanoma. What about a family history of dysplastic nevi? We talked about how hard it is to get, but suppose that's all you can find out about a patient. You do this, it turns out that yes, just knowing that they have a family history of dysplastic nevi, even if they themselves don't have the nevi, they're at increased risk for getting melanoma. So, and what about those who have no family history of dysplastic nevi, they just happen to have one? Are they at a greater risk for developing melanoma at the low end of the spectrum? Well, again, this was a study when Ken Kramer and, and, and uh, Mark Green were doing this. They published this in the New England Journal because it was kind of interesting that those who had no family history of melanoma or dysplastic nevi, had about a seven-fold increased risk of getting melanoma anyway, and that's consistent with the data I showed you, about a 7% increase for those group zeros with a totally different data set. So just having a dysplastic nevus alone is probably a uh, significant increased risk. And how about the lowest common denominator? Somebody's got one dysplastic nevus. Are they at increased risk for getting melanoma? Well, Rona Mackay did this study in Scotland looking at this, and she looked at people with one or two dysplastic nevi, uh, and they had about a two-fold increased risk for getting melanoma. Now, that's about the same as red hair, so it's not a super high risk, but even having one or two of these were a marker for increased risk for having melanoma and probably worth following a little more closely. Now, some people have argued that it's actually the total number of nevi 
rather than the presence of dysplastic nevi that's really causing this risk for increased risk for melanoma. But the data doesn't support that. This was an interesting study done a while ago by George Roush at Yale, where what he found is the relative risk for melanoma increases about twofold or so in those who have 16 or more of any kind of nevi. But the total nevus count was not statistically significant when you adjust it out for the presence of dysplastic nevi. But conversely, the relative risk for melanoma was about seven and a half fold in those who had dysplastic nevi and remained significant even after you adjusted out for nevus count. So if you could, I know it's after lunch and that's a little bit uh, tricky, but the bottom line is it was the presence of dysplastic nevi, not the nevus count that made a difference. And it went from this, they concluded that probably it's not just a quantitative kind of thing, it's actually a gene that is probably influencing your melanoma risk associated with the development of uh, dysplastic nevi. So again, it's the strongest factor we talked about. Here's another paper by Alan Halpern showing that mole count was not significant. And this was a paper done by Peggy Tucker, who's also at the NIH. It was published in JAMA. Here is nevi, any kind of nevi, number of nevi, and melanoma risk. And you can see as the nevus count goes up, the melanoma risk goes up. But here is if you break them down into dysplastic nevi and non-dysplastic nevi, and you see the gradient overall, you can draw a little trend line, it's much steeper for the presence of dysplastic nevi as opposed to the non-dysplastic nevi. So you know, clearly, um, there's something more than the total number of moles that are making a difference in these patients. Now, others have argued, well, maybe we're seeing more melanoma in these patients, we just follow them more closely. I know that Whitney High alluded to that this morning about the study showing the more biopsies you do, uh, the greater the number of melanomas that are detected. And of course, the counter argument to that is maybe there's more melanomas, and that's why more biopsies are being done. You know, you can go back and forth. It's a chicken and the egg problem. But this was a study that was done, looked kind of interesting, done by Ash Margub, who's now at Sloan Kettering. He was a fellow with us at the time. And he compared 287 so-called the classic dysplastic nevus patients with 100 or so lesions that are atypical. And he compared them to 831 non-dysplastic nevus controls all patients were followed with at least the annual exam. The only difference was that dysplastic nevus patients at the time had photos. The controls did not have them. But here's actually the results. You can see that in the two groups of during the time of follow-up, there were 10 melanomas found in the dysplastic nevus patients, only two melanomas found in the controls with about four times as many patients. So the 10-year risk for melanoma was about 10% in this group and only about a half percent in that group, which again is somewhat consistent with the 1% you'd expect. So the conclusion, at least from this, it wasn't the close follow-up that was making you find more melanomas. In fact, there really are more melanomas there. Now, is this increased risk for the developing melanoma in these patients significant even after accounting for all the other factors that are out there? And several people have looked at that, but the bottom line is that the presence of dysplastic EVA, we emphasize to you again, is the most important risk factor for developing melanoma, even after you account for all the other risk factors of melanoma that we know at this point uh, through a multivariate analysis. Okay, so based on these things, I hope I've convinced you that these patients are at increased risk for getting melanoma, even from those who have many of them down to those who have one or two. So what's the impact on managing these patients and what can we do with this? Well, first of all, again, when we follow them, when we develop a management strategy, it's the risk for developing initial melanoma. We talked about once they've had one melanoma, if they have these, they have an increased risk for developing a subsequent melanoma. So this, several papers have looked at this. This is from Lee Albert at Harvard, and basically showing the same thing, that careful follow-up of these patients are warranted. 
Um, this was an interesting paper that was published in the JAD showing that because these patients are followed a little more closely once their melanoma is diagnosed, the average thickness of their second melanoma, if they got a second one, was less than their first one, probably because it was caught a little earlier. So one of the questions that comes up a lot is, do you need, do you need to use baseline imaging in these patients when you follow them to compare their dysplastic nevi? And you know, there's a lot of myths regarding these photographs that you have to take them multiple times, that you have to use them, that there's some magical technique that you have to use. But there are really some facts with this is that you only have to use them, take the images one time. We actually image them about every 10 to 15 years. And I tell my patients it's like a good wine, it gets good, it gets good. At some point, it gets a little bad, you have to take some new ones. But the older they are, and sometimes the better they are, it's only a tool. Most people like to do shave biopsy with a 15 blade, some like number 10 blade, that's what you're comfortable with. And there's no special technique. We have a technique that we use that we published, but you know, again, it's what you're comfortable with. So can these baseline images really help in early detection of melanoma? I'm going to show you a series of patients that really show this, and it's kind of interesting. This is all from, I could bring you 100 of these from NYU, but this is one, you can see this is over about 11 months. You can see this has gotten bigger. You know, in the context of the other lesions, it's kind of hard to see that, but clearly there's objective change, and this was a 0.2 millimeter melanoma over 11 months. Here's another one. You can see nothing here. This is about two years later. Again, you think this is pretty innocuous. This was a melanoma in situ on this woman. Here's another one. This is about a year and a half. Nothing here. Here's something. That was a 0.2 millimeter invasive melanoma. Here's another one. You can see the difference before, afterwards. See this little, this is a blow up of it over here. A little nodule. That was over three years. This guy was away for three years and came back. But he had a mini nodular melanoma arising in a dysplastic nevus. That one you might get. This one is kind of tough because this is nothing here. And this is about uh, two years later that she came in. That's a melanoma in situ on the leg. So, I, you know, again, without these images, it's pretty tough to find them. You'd find them at some point. But we have a number. Here's another one. This is pretty clear, right? Nothing here. This is a year later. That's obviously a lot of growth in a year. That was a melanoma in situ, from, coming from nowhere, as you can see from there. And you know, I have about 100 of these I could run through and show you, but it's pretty dramatic. And others have seen the same thing. This is a study done by John Kelly in Australia, where they followed 287 adults for 42 months, so three and a half years. They found 16 patients had 20 melanomas. 11 of the 20 melanomas were detected through photographic change. And in the paper, he talks about this and said that he believes they would not have found any of those 11 at the point that they did by doing this. So it's quite effective. What about dermoscopy? Could dermoscopy help in diagnosing melanoma? A bunch of papers have looked at this. This is from Tom Salapek, who's a former fellow of ours who's in uh, Canada, in Alberta, Canada. And uh, basically, there are a lot of scoring systems that are available with dermoscopy that make this effective. How many of you use dermoscopes in here? Okay, well that's pretty good. That's, that's a great number and hopefully all of you will get the chance to use it, but the fact is that it really helps in the diagnosis of this. Now how important is to follow these patients regularly? We talked about it, but what about some data? Um, a couple of people have looked at this. As I mentioned that, one of the things that's interesting is, this is the average time from the diagnosis of the first melanoma to the second melanoma. These are basically people who had two melanomas have dysplastic nevi. What's interesting is the site of the second lesion was in a different anatomic region in four out of five patients, roughly. So you have to follow them. It's not like they had a melanoma on their back. Statistically, if they get a second one, they're likely to have it somewhere else. So not just looking at the same spot, but close follow-up with complete skin exams is really important. 
You have to remember these patients also, they are at increased risk for ocular melanoma. There's several papers that show they have about a three or four-fold increased risk for developing ocular melanoma. Ocular melanoma is much rarer. There are about 2,500 cases a year in the whole country, so it's about one you know, 20th or 30th or 40th as frequent as we see with melanomas, but it does happen. So we have these patients, again, be checked by their ophthalmologist. Just a regular retinal exam works, but it works for that quite well. Here's another paper showing, again, a relative risk of ocular melanoma in patients with dysplasia by about four, and the risk for cutaneous melanoma was about four in that group, too. All right, so when do you start following these patients if you're going to follow them? Well, the answer is that that's somewhat controversial, but if you look at the data from this, and this is from the NYU, our, our group, if you look at stage one melanomas that have these, these patients, they tend to get their, their melanomas at a younger age. So the average of our patients who developed dysplastic nevi, uh, sorry, developed melanoma with dysplastic nevi, the average age was about 40, compared to the average age of the U.S. and our data sets, about 50 is the average age for getting melanoma. But, so they develop them younger. We've had people in their 20s in this particular series who got melanoma. At what age does the increased risk begin to appear? And unlike congenital Levi, where you can see these in kids, it turns out the third decade, in other words, age 21 is when you begin to see this increased risk of melanoma developing. So for that reason, we typically follow them, start looking at them, unless they have a really strong family history when they hit about 20 or so. So a lot of times, you know, you'll, they'll bring kids in, this mole has changed dramatically. It's not so unusual for that to, a mole to change in a kid. In fact, you can develop um, new true nevi until you're about 40. Above 40, typically you're, the pigmented things you develop are other things. And you can get a nevus afterwards, but somebody that looks like a nevus that's new after age of 40, you really have to think about biopsying to do that. So how often do we see these patients? Well, we, again, we do it by the group risk I told you before. The group zeros that have uh, no family or personal history of melanoma, we'll see them twice a year, you know, every six months for twice, and then after that we see them once a year. And up to the group threes that have a 50-plus percent lifetime chance of getting melanoma, we see them three times a year for life. And the reality is that these patients can develop melanoma for life. You have to follow them for life. You can't say, oh, nothing happened for five years. I'm going to leave you alone, because they do develop it. All right, so is this regimen that we use at NYU, and many others use this regimen, is it successful in lowering mortality and morbidity from melanoma? Well, this is a series that we looked at. We took those, those 452 patients I showed you earlier, we followed them prospectively with this type of follow-up for 10 years. And there were no recurrences or metastases in the melanomas we detected from this regimen. Now, were you following them too frequently? Could you follow them less? I don't know. But I can tell you that using the regimen I just gave you, going at least twice, you know, twice a year for a year, and then once a year for the group zeros, up to four times a year for the group threes, the reality is we have no recurrences in that group. One of the things that comes up very frequently, how do you cut these things out? Because that is somewhat controversial. Can you saucerize them, or do you need an ellipse with a suture closure? So a bunch of people have looked at this, and some people have suggested that a dysplastic is amenable to a deep shave removal. This was an article in Dermalogic Surgery. So you can, in fact, saucerize them if you want. I kind of view it that way. But one of the issues that really comes up more frequently is what happens when you biopsy these, and they come back as it's not fully removed. It goes to a margin. Do you have to fully excise these or go back and get the, the, uh, any uh, residual dysplastic nevus that's left behind, or can, in fact, you just leave it? And this really spurs a lot of debates in various sessions on pigmented lesions that we have. Excuse me. And this is kind of what the reason is why it's controversial. 
you know, there, here's a study that suggests a 30% histological association. I told you that number is between 20 and 30% in terms of melanomas being histologically associated with dysplastic nevi. So they're more common in terms of their precursor risk than run-of-the-mill banal nevi. So if you just shaved the nevus and it came back, you'd say, ah, it's probably nothing. I'm not worried about it if you took it off for cosmetic reasons. But what happens when it repigments in terms of melanoma? And this is another study suggesting that because they're more, have a higher potential for dysplastic nevi, that's potentially problematic. Let me show you what I mean by that. Okay, here's the dysplastic nevus. We take our scalpel and we're going to hopefully excise it. We'll wake you up a little bit here with this. It's a very important excision. Beautiful technique on the ellipse. And we've removed it and we suture it close. So far it looks fantastic, right? And we get this pathology report back that says it's a junctional dysplastic nevus with lentiginous type inflamed. The lesion extends to a peripheral margin. In other words, it goes to the edge of what we did the excisional biopsy on. So the issue is we have this beautiful scar, and then two years later, we get this. We get repigmentation at the margin. So what happens? What would we do this? Well, the problem is if we go to re-excise this and remove it, what's the problem with recurrence of pigment? Well, there's something called pseudomelanoma. And what pseudomelanoma is, when pathologists read this, is that you have some of the bizarre appearance when you have a recurrent nevus, even if it's banal nevus, some of the, the, the uh, morphology of melanoma. So again, if you did the calculation, and this is roughly the annual risk of an individual lesion of a dysplastic that converting to melanoma is about, you did all the math here, it's about um, roughly 10% uh, associated histologically, so the risk of conversion here is about uh, 100,000 per year, about times 10%. And in the banal nevi, it's much, much less, although it's a higher association. So again, you throw all the math in, the risk of a dysplastic nevus converting to melanoma in a lifetime, an individual dysplastic nevus, is about one in 500. The risk of a banal nevus being associated with melanoma is about one in 8,000. So on an individual basis, a dysplastic nevus has about 16 times the chance of evolving into melanoma than a run-of-the-mill nevus does. So for that reason, when you have this recurrence and it comes back as a pseudomelanoma and it's from a dysplastic nevus, you're in kind of a bind, right? Because what happens, you're not sure. You send this to 10 pathologists, nine of them say it's pseudomelanoma, and the 10th one says, I'm not sure. And then you're really stuck because you have to do this. And this is one of the original papers published on pseudomelanoma, looking at recurrent nevuses. This was by Bernie Ackerman almost 35 years ago when he first described this, but they're totally benign. But the bottom line is they're tough to differentiate from melanoma histologically. So you are stuck. It does no good to tell the patient, here's what the debate is, because what the, you're going to say, the patient's going to say, I got to re-excise it. So suppose you get this issue coming back. You know, it's clear that if you have a recurrence, you don't want to have that happen, so you're going to remove this so it doesn't, you don't have the uh, dilemma that I just told you about. What if you get this specimen back, you get this biopsy report that the margins are clear. We did that excision, the margins are clear, and it looks great, and two years later this happens again. So how can that be? I know uh, Whitney High, my good friend this morning, talked to you about pathology and how this stuff's processed, but that's very relevant to this because if this was the lesion, here's the excision that I did, and if they section those blocks like I showed you with these blue lines, in fact, you think of each of these as a section, every one of those would have clear margins. These, they'd say they came close to the end, but because those sectioning are done at two millimeter margins typically, where there's a step section, two millimeter intervals, excuse me, that you could have all your edges be clear, but in fact, it, the tumor itself is not clear. 
As you can see, it goes to the end over here. So even if you get a report that says there are clear margins, if you have pigment recurrence down the line, you have to strongly consider re-excising these lesions. So how can you minimize the risk for this happening if you don't want to get stuck with this? Well, we actually did a paper about uh, 25 years ago now, it doesn't seem that long, where we took a 51 consecutive dysplastic nevi and took a number 11 blade and put a woods light before we were, going to, so we were going to excise these anyway, and put a woods light. What we did is we etched where we thought the edge of the lesion was with the woods light. So you could see the, the pigment a little better by doing that. And then we went and we excised the lesion and in turn we removed it. And then we found that on average the pigment went about, the cells went about a millimeter histologically, millimeter, millimeter and a half beyond where we thought they were with the lesion. So here would be, if you saw a section, here would be our etch marks and you see the, the cells would extend slightly beyond where we had the etch mark. So based on that, two millimeter margins were adequate 95% of the time. And that's the study where the recommendation comes from that if you're going to excise these, statistically you should try to do two millimeter margins around them because 95% of the time you're going to be able to get these out. And this is again from the paper itself at the time. And these are pretty much the accepted margins for trying to excise these at this point. Now, this was a study we did with uh, 450 members of the Academy nationwide, but 75% used these two millimeter margins that we published. Okay, so now we're going through this again and we're going to excise this, we're having fun excising this lesion, right? I had fun making that slide. Okay, so that's if we excised it. Well, what about if we went the other way and we do a saucerization? Is that okay? I alluded to that before. You know, is there a problem with saucerizing removing the lesion that way as opposed to excising it? And is there a difference whether you excise it or whether you do a deep shave for them? Well, it turns out, as I showed you this paper before, that in fact that you can in fact shave these. To me, the difference between a shave and an excision, frankly, is whether you suture it closed, as long as you go deep enough with the shave to get the deep margin out. And when you have these lesions looked at, besides the lateral margins, it's important to have the deep margin checked because it can recur just as easily from that too. This was another paper showing the same thing, that you can deep shave these without any problem. Deep shave implying at least getting down into dermis when you're doing these. Now, you get these reports back, and this is probably one of the most controversial things that are out there too, that describe the degree of atypia on a dysplastic mild, moderate, and severe. Does that correlate with the way you manage these patients? Well, I was part of the NIH consensus conference that was almost 20 years ago now that looked at melanoma and its precursors, and that's where these adjectives came out of, that they should be classified, this is from the paper in JAMA, from the, from the conference, classified as mild, moderate, or severe. Well, the problem is, is that severe is probably melanoma in situ. Some people argue that's what it is. It's not like it's black and white. There's a continuum, and a lot of it is where people draw the line is what it is. Well, the other thing that's bad is if you actually look at a bunch of lesions that are classified as mild or moderate, there's no difference in the melanoma risk. And how do you determine that if you've taken the lesion out? Well, they've got back and statistically look at ones that were not fully removed and then seen what percentage of them actually evolve into melanoma some of which are associated with malpractice cases. So uh, the reality is there was no correlation with the adjective at the time of the biopsy versus the subsequent melanoma risk. So these adjectives actually have no proven help whatsoever. And I actually encourage my pathologist not to give me the adjective. I just want to know if it's a dysplastic nevus or not, or if it's severe, I want to see it severe, could be a melanoma in situ basically with that. So what do you, oops, hold on a second. What are, your, what are your colleagues doing with this? 
on this. And again, this is again from that same survey of the Academy members, that 86% intend total removal of this plastic levi when they biopsy for the lesion we talked about. And again, this is another paper showing the risk of partial removal for this because of the risk of subsequent melanoma. If you only take part of them out, you may not be getting the worst part out, especially if you're missing the center. So you may be under-diagnosing them, under-managing them, and potentially there may be a nidus of melanoma in situ there that you're missing. So a problem with that too. All right, well, we talked about managing it. What we really need at the end of the day is some way of identifying which subset of this plastic nevi are going to evolve into melanoma. We know they're markers, so we know just having them, whether you call them dysplastic nevi or little brown spots, if you have them or the more you have of them, if you have a family history of them, the greater your risk of getting melanoma. We know that some of them can be precursors. We've talked about it and shown you that too. But it would be great if somebody walked in with 100 of them, we knew which were the three that were at high risk to do this. So people are looking at this. There are a bunch of studies going on. This is one that's really a follow-up study now that's being done at the National Cancer Institute. And what they looked at this thing called DNA repair capacity, which is measured in lymphocytes. And the reality is that it turns out if they had this, the odds ratio for developing melanoma and those who had low DNA repair capacity was about seven times the chance of getting melanoma than those who had good DNA repair capacity. So we're looking at these kinds of factors to best predict which of these moles may have this. And I suspect in five to 10 years from now, it's gonna be easy, because we'll have some tests, we do a little, touch a little pin that's got some sort of marker on it, and we'll look at the, the enzyme or whatever the marker is gonna be, the reagent, and it's gonna tell us which of these to biopsy. The other issue that's critically important with these patients also is to get the sun protected mentioned out, because they're at highest risk. So how effective are we at doing this? This was a study that came out of uh, Scandinavia, which basically showed that Patients with dysplastic nevi were still likely to go out and sunburn and tan and all those bad things. So this is a clearly a subset of the population we could focus on, and we do try to focus on them, but that's sort of the macro effort. The micro effort is when you guys see these patients every day in your practices, take the time, remind them, you know, two senses, protect yourself from the sun, it's critical, you're at highest risk for getting melanoma. Even if they're there for uh, tinea pedis, you see these lesions on them, talk to them about it because you can make a difference in the long run. So based on all these things, I will give you our 10-point method of managing these patients. Number one, you need regular follow-up of these patients depending on where they fall on that risk gradient that I gave you. Number two, you want to begin regular screening of these patients at age 20 uh, because of the early age of onset of melanoma in these patients. Number three is do complete full-body exams totals because they can get their melanomas anywhere. Number four is you have to teach the patient self-examination. That's a very important part of what we teach because make them a partner in their own healthcare. And they, if you're looking at it, they're gonna find these things on a regular basis too. And number five, augment your exam if you can with uh, certainly dermoscopy. Uh, many of you heard that uh, Melafine got its device approved uh, last week or so from the FDA and that's gonna be, I think, a big help. Uh, by way of conflict, I do some consulting with them, but I think it's kind of a cool device, and I hope you all have a chance to play with it. Number six is we talked about total body photographs or images to enhance uh, the detection and change. We want to biopsy these lesions that are suspicious or changing where possible. Don't forget about the ophthalmologic exam, number eight, because they are increased risk for ocular melanoma, so make sure they see their ophthalmologist once a year when they're getting their glasses checked because they are at increased risk for that. Number nine is remember to counsel them about sun protection and avoidance to uh, minimize their subsequent risk. And number 10 is don't forget that 
their first-degree family members, mother, father, brother, sister, son, daughter, are at increased risk for getting melanoma if they have dysplastic EVI, especially if they have a personal history of melanoma. Remind them to have their first-degree relatives also checked. Often they don't live in the same city, which happens, but of course you can remind them to have them seen where they are. So what's going to happen in the future about dysplastic EVI? We talked about it. The precursor issues, we have to be able to identify which are the key ones that could turn into melanoma. And in terms of the marker issues, when you think about it, in terms of these showing people who are increased risk for melanoma, we're really looking at phenotypic markers, red hair, blonde hair, uh, presence of dysplastic nevi. Those are probably surrogates for the real genetic factors that we haven't yet identified. And they'll be out there, and if, I believe, again, in five to ten years we'll do this. Certainly public education, we talked about focusing on these people are important, and a lot of important further studies to come. So in summary, I've tried to go a little bit over dysplastic and congenital nevi. We, you could spend the whole three days, we could have people talking about that, but reminding you that they are both precursors and markers. Both of them are precursors and markers for melanoma, but neither of them are obligate precursors. In other words, not by far does not everyone go on. I showed you roughly for dysplastic nevi, it's about one in 500 will actually evolve into a melanoma, and for um, congenital nevi, it's probably, small congenital nevi, it's probably one in 5,000. Again, I, I give you the asterisk with that, the caveat that it's very tough to do these calculations correctly. The management of congenital nevi are primarily related to their precursor risk, because they're not really as, as big in terms of markers, while the management of dysplastic nevi are prim primarily related to their marker risk. In other words, you're not just looking at the moles, you're looking at the patient, because you know, the patient overall is at higher risk for developing melanoma, not necessarily within the mole itself. And I think, again, it's going to be future studies that are going to make a difference with this. So I hope in the last hour or so I've taken a very complex subject. I've tried to you know, make it as clinically relevant as I could, but it is hard and there's no perfect answers. I can only give you my way of doing this, but I hope uh, you'll have me back in a couple of years and I'll have some new updates and some exciting breakthroughs in this area. So I'll stop at this point. Thank you so much for having me and I'll take some questions. Let's go right up to the mic and there we go. Thank you, it's great. Uh, when you're excising a giant congenital nevus, do you, uh, typically think about it like a one centimeter margin? So the question is about a giant congenital nevus. So first of all, um, yes. Uh, you know, the if it's truly a giant congenital nevus, it's a challenge to excise it. By definition, it's at least 20 centimeters long, which is about that. So typically, um, there are some tricks to get extra tissue. The most commonly used one, there's two ways to do it. One is serial excision. So let's say you had a big oval lesion like this, you would cut an ellipse out the center, sew it together, wait about six weeks, the skin would kind of come together, and you cut it out again and re-excise it again, and you can do those for you know, large, medium-sized ones, and that's one of the easier ways to do that. The second thing you could do is use tissue expanders. And basically, a tissue expander, you, you all know what tissue expanders are? Have you seen them? They're basically uh, balloons with a tube that comes out the side that you fill with saline, and you implant the balloon lateral to uh, both sides to the congenital nevus. And what you do is you eject some saline and the, the, the cannula sticks out of the skin. It looks almost like a uh, pick line or something. And you re-eject them once a week. You put more saline in there. And over six to eight weeks, you have stretched the tissue. And then what you do is you take those out. You have enough slacks of epidermis and dermis at that point to excise and bring it together. Sometimes it takes more than once. Much easier to do that on the chest. It's hard to do it at a distal extremity because you'd be cutting off blood flow as those tissue expanders get bigger. So there's technical issues with it. 
But that's how people really repair those. And it's, you know, it's a tough thing to do. Sometimes you can only debulk them. You can't get the full one out. It, it is a real challenge. Of course, those are the ones you want to get rid of because those are clearly at higher risk for getting melanoma. But you really need our plastic, plastic surgery colleagues a lot of times to help with those. And uh, we're very fortunate at NYU because we have a, uh, a multi-specialty group that works on these. We work with plastic surgeons and other groups to try to deal with them. But it's a challenge to do, and there's no easy way to do it. Hi. Um, I realize this isn't the pathology talk, but I had a question about architectural disorder versus cytological atypia. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, on the pathology for dysplastic nevus, I was wondering what, what terms you use to actually define that it's dysplastic and, you know, like the difference between architectural disorder and cytological atypia. That's a great question because uh, there's no right answer to that. I can tell you what I do. Uh, I, I pick a pathologist I like. And when I say I like, I like them personally, but I like them in terms of I agree with what they're saying. You know, the, the real argument, and this is part of the dilemma of defining a dysplastic nevus, and that is that some people use architectural issues, some people use cytologic atypia, some people require both of them to be present. When I say people, pathologists in their definition, that's actually one of the arguments of why it's, I showed you why congenital nevi, it's tough to define. It's sometimes tough to define these histologically for dysplastic nevi too. And when pathologists have this debate, we could have brought two pathologists here, we would have debated that eloquently, which, if you one or the other or both. Um, to me, what I care about is clinician. I know whatever you call these, people that have lots of these brown, funny-looking things or increased risk for getting melanoma, I got to follow them more closely. So again, when I excise them, if it comes back purely a dysplastic nevus, I'll excise them narrowly, we talked about. If it's severe, possibly melanoma in situ, could be an early evolving melanoma, you get all these phrases in the path reports, I'm going to treat it like a melanoma in situ. So I will err on the side of being uh, more complete and compulsive because, again, a little extra excision is much better than missing a melanoma to do it. But it's, personally, I like, I think, because I was brought up at an architecture school, an architecture dermatologic environment with Bernie Ackerman, who is much more architectural than cytologic mm -hmm. and looked at pattern recognition, that's kind of the way I was brought up. But if you had somebody from University of Pennsylvania with Wally Clark, they were all cytologic atypia people. So it's probably somewhere in between. Um, the pathologist I spoke to about it, he actually thought that um, cytological atypia was helpful for them in making sure that it was a dysplastic nevus and not melanoma. And, and you know, again, part of that is style. Uh, you, if you were a, a, an architectural pattern person, you would say, I don't care about that. I care about the pattern. I don't need to know the, what the cytology looked like. That's icing on the cake. I, I, I could argue it either way. Mm -hmm. But you know, again, I think the, the end of the story is really the bottom line is that you have to be comfortable with the pathologist you work with and understand what that pathologist is telling you and what it translates to in terms of applying it in a clinical setting. That's the best answer I give you to do. Okay. Because you, you bring up a great dilemma and we could debate it, not you and I, but two pathologists could mm -hmm. debate it very eloquently. It's great when you can use the same person. Sometimes you, you can't always, but um, could you repeat the name of that device you mentioned? With the diagnostic device, it's called Melafind, M-E-L-A-F-I-N-D. It's made by Melasciences. I'm sure you're all going to be hearing about it because it's, okay. uh, it's kind of cool, actually. Next. You mentioned ocular screening. What about other uh, non-cutaneous uh, screening techniques? Well, you know, it's, it's a good question. I mean, you can't have non-cutaneous, non-ocular melanomas. And obviously, you could have CNS melanomas. Anywhere you have uh, any kind of pigment, you could get a substantia nigra or any kind of uh, 
embryologic things that come to the same thing and end up being melanocytes or neural tissue. Um, but it's pretty rare and it's really tough to screen for it because they're in locations. By the time, usually if somebody's got a CNS melanoma, um, by the time you diagnose it, it's because of symptoms. You're getting seizures or you know, something like that that are significant. So um, it's usually tough to diagnose it. There's no blood test or no screen that you can do easily for non-cutaneous things or non-ocular non-cutaneous, but it's a good question. I'll hear um, atypical nevus and dysplastic nevus um, be used interchangeably. Are they the same thing? Are they different? Okay, so the question is, are, are typical nevus the same as dysplastic nevi? Well, you know, it's, uh, yeah, they're the same thing, okay? And uh, some people also call them Clark's nevi, named after Wally Clark from Penn, who was one of the first people to describe it. It's, it's kind of a funny story because uh, uh, Bernie Ackerman and Wally Clark disagreed vehemently on things. Again, we talked about architecture versus cytology and various other things, and uh, Bernie Ackerman believed that he published that dysplastic nevi are the most common nevi known in man. And he argued, I see hundreds of these coming across my microscope every day, but again, you think about it, he's seeing a skewed sample of the population because he's seeing all the things that are biopsied. But uh, to kind of stick it to Wally Clark, he wrote this paper about how they should be called Clark's nevi in honor of him, but it really was a little dig to him, so uh, it's kind of funny when you hear that. Um, but all that, they're both gone, God bless them, you know, I, you know, thank God, I'm still here, you know, that's good too. But uh, they, the debates used to be very interesting. The term atypical nevus really came up with atypical mole, and the reason is that this plastic, this plasia, has some uh, connotations in pathology that's beyond what we see, and also it takes out the those are great for people who look at cytologic atypia, but they're not really good for the architectural people with dysplasia. So at that 1992 NIH consensus conference, they actually wanted to change the name of these from dysplastic nevi to atypical moles, and I, was, I actually signed on to that. Well, for the next two or three years, it was a disaster because insurance companies looked at this, they said, ah, oh, they're moles, why are we paying for them, right? And uh, it got to be very, very complicated, so people kind of backed off and used atypical nevi instead of atypical moles. So the answer to your question is Clark's nevus, atypical nevus, dysplastic nevus, for all intents and purposes, are synonyms. Hi. Um, in my area, the pathologists always grade the dysplastic nevi mild, moderate, and severe, but the general, uh, well, my supervising physician um, generally feels that the mildly atypical nevi are what he tells people is basically 50% of people have mild atypia and it's nothing to be concerned about and um, we don't typically re-excise them. So I guess I'm wondering, are these, are these truly atypical nevi? I mean, we're Well, again, part of that depends on your pathologist and depends on what they're reading. Mm -hmm. I would, it'd be a pretty skewed sample if half the nevi sent in were dysplastic nevi. And I, and I have a well, skewed population because I see people that, that's what I see. It doesn't make are, sense because then you're that saying that 50% of, of the population obviously doesn't have that increased risk for um, developing melanoma. <laughs> no, that, that doesn't, that, so. that sounds, I mean, I'd have to have more of it in the context of it, but it's, yeah. it sounds pretty high. Yeah. You know, again, I would argue, as I showed you, the, the adjectives mild and moderate mean nothing in terms of subsequent risk of that lesion or the patient right. getting melanoma. Uh, and, so you, uh, treat, you treat mild to moderate basically the same and ba severe basically as a melanoma. Inside. Correct, because I think that's, again, you know, it's not a, a, a perfectly defined subset. There's overlap. It's a continuum, and a lot of it is where people draw the line. Mm -hmm. But even people with, even mild ones, 
subsequently have gone on to be melanoma when they haven't been fully excised. And believe me, most of the time it's because it's two or three years later, there's a nodule that pops up there, and you re-excise it, and it comes back as, yeah, this is probably melanoma, 0.3 millimeters, and you go back and read the original slide, and there's something there. And it's probably, often what happens, you go back and you ribbon through the block. In other words, you saw with, with Whitney this morning, showed you the, how they block, they take a little slice off the top of each block. You go back and take the whole block and slice it, and you see there's a nidus of melanoma that you missed. So that's the other part of it, too, because you remember the, the biopsy that's typically done is looking at one or two percent of the tissue. So right, right. that's a good question. You kind of already just answered it, but I'll go ahead and ask anyway. Just um, especially when we do. Uh, you get shave, closer to the mic. I'm sorry. If when we perform, you know, shave biopsies initially, um, and you know they come back as mild or moderate or or, or uh, you know one of the two, um, and they come back in, and there's you know you clinically don't see any more pigmentation, and of course on the shave, you know, they may not have commented on you know margins and, and clearance and things. Um, it, for in your opinion, then would you say no matter what, if it's mild or moderate on the uh, the pathology report, go back and re-excise, even if you don't clinically see any pigmentation? So, so there's two things. There's two parts to that. One is, what if you get the report? First of all, what if you see re you get a report that said it was fine? You see re-pigmentation re subsequently? Would I take it out? And the answer is, yeah. I showed you an example of that I would definitely do that. The flip side is, what if you get a report that says uh, extends very close to a margin? Uh, consider re-excision. Well, you know, I, again, I, I like my pathologist not to say consider anything or do anything. I like to make that decision. I ask in my reports that that not be put in. But I would follow the patient. If there's no recurrence of pigment, I'd leave it alone. And the reason is, is that when these specimens are processed, if you think of the specimen as kind of uh, half an orange, you know, it's hemisphere and you've cut the orange flat and the flat part is the surface of the skin. When they actually do this and put it together, the outside little rim of tissue is lost. So the orange peel basically is lost when they look at it. So sometimes it says something comes close or it comes to an edge and it doesn't recur because in fact that little rim has been, was clear but it was lost in processing, just the way that it's done. So for that reason, if it doesn't repigment, I leave it alone. Unless it, if it came back, severe atypia uh, approaches a margin, whatever, of course I would re-excise it at that point. Okay, uh, we'll take the last two questions. Let me take one, I'll take the other. Okay, I, I, I think we'll go back and forth, there we go. Okay, thanks. Um, my question is just when you're talking about family history of melanoma, um, any like first degree relative more important than you know further down the line or just anybody in the family? Okay, so the question, what are the key factors, well, the risk factors you're asking for melanoma, is that? Well, family history specifically, is it more important if it's a first degree relative? Okay, absolutely. So the question is, you know, if, if first degree relative is ones who are directly next to you in the family tree, so mother, father, brother, sister, son, daughter. First degree relative is more important than second degree or third degree relatives, by, de by definition. Although, you know, somebody will come and say, oh yeah, my great aunt had melanoma, you know, or my, uh, you know, my second cousin had melanoma. Those are obviously much softer, but they're there. But if you have a first degree relative of melanoma, that's a big red flag for doing that. And it's probably a genetic thing that we haven't identified yet, because clearly there's a, you know, your families you follow through this that have it. Um, we don't currently use um, total body photography at my office, and you had mentioned a technique for doing that. Could you comment a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's published, again, we published our, the basic technique in the Archives of Dermatology. The head lead author is uh, Bill Slew, S-L-U-E, uh, and it's probably uh, like 89 or 90 in the archives, but it's got a section-by-section uh, section way to do it. It's 24 images that we do 
And it's just what you're used to. We do those images. There's a bunch of other ways to do it. There's some software out there. You can just have infinite images that you can zoom in better. So it just depends on what you want to do and how you want to follow. Um, I don't know if Canfield was here, photography at your meeting, but you know, they're at the Academy if you go there and take a look at it. They have really cool software to do this also that you, they take high resolution images and they can just zoom in on them and do that. So we actually use some of that too. But there's a bunch, but the basic set of images is in that paper and that's used by most groups. Okay, well thank you very much for having me again. It's been a great pleasure to be here.